0: Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep, Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 Convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first fight presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from SpeechTherapyPD.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech-Language Pathology Program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy. But those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's Michelle. And I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis, to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can I begin? Then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to Chasing the Swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning! Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to probably one of like my more nerdy passions today, <laughs> so huzzah. Today, we are honored to have the one and only Natalie Douglas, PhD, CCC SLP, who's a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Central Michigan University. She's also an editor for the adult section of the Informed SLP. Now, if you heard adults, yes, you are correct. Natalie. <laughs> subject matter areas of expertise are dementia, aphasia, and other like cognitive communication disorders. But her true first love is talking about research to practice and how we can branch into this. And that's kind of what First bite is all about. First bite is designed to be the bridge. I mean, yes, it does count for CEUs. Thank you very, very much, speechtherapypd.com. But also huge shout out to like Yumi and Sumi and Darla for like five years unwavering support for every crazy ass idea I throw at them. But anywho, I digress. This is the opportunity to take the subject matter experts and put good in the world. Because as I've said before, I live literally in the epicenter of the world where all the non-speech, oral motor, exercising, vibrating, plasticky things that you can put in one's mouth are made 10 miles from my house. And that is not current evidence-based practice. We'll say it's them for the people in the back of the room. So here we are. So Dr. Natalie Douglas, thank you. Oh my
1: goodness. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you today, Michelle. Can't wait. <laughs> okay, so we met at Lisha. Lasha? Lasha. Okay, whatever one I was saying, yes, I was saying it wrong because they were like, oh, if it's Lisha or Lasha, I was saying it wrong because they knew I was not from Louisiana, however, and, I, <laughs> and now I'm getting them mixed up and I don't know which one it was.
0: It's right. I think I think Hillary will give us both a little bit of grace. But I, I think mean, she at the same time, like I teased, I was like, it's not as bad as Georgia. Georgia, I love you, but it's called Gasha, and that sounds like a wound, and that just makes me <laughs> giggle. So like a wound? Oh my god. It does. But I'm like, row, Uh oh. But okay. Can you tell us how you became an SLP? And then focused in this area? Like, give us give us the backstory, lady. Oh, sure. I'm so
1: happy to do that. So I'm one of those very odd people that I kind of knew that I wanted to be a speech pathologist from the very beginning. So I was probably in high school and I became introduced to the field of speech pathology because I was looking for something that was in the middle of education and the medical field. So again, I was one of those very odd cases that knew, I knew I wanted this to be my major and I stuck with it the whole time. And now it's been over 20 years. So then I was kind of on the fence about whether I wanted to go into clinical practice or potentially get a PhD. And I really, you know, when I finished with my master's Thought. it was a, it was a hard decision for me because I really was interested in the science and thinking about ways that we can best you know serve our clients through best practice. Um, but then I opted for clinical practice. So then I ended up working full-time in hospital, outpatient, home health and nursing home environments for about 10 years or so. And it was about halfway through that, mostly during my time, as a nursing home SLP, when I realized, wow, this is really tough work. And I know that this is a pediatric audience, but maybe some of you do skilled nursing on the side or yeah. know people. Yeah. It's, it's a tough setting, you know, and I realized, you know, there were many situations where I knew what to do. Like I knew what best practice was, but I couldn't do it. And it was usually due to some type of organizational constraint, if it was productivity or not having resources, not having supplies, uh, various barriers to doing what I knew was right. And I actually felt really terrible about it because I was like, gosh, I don't really feel like I'm helping anybody. So I ended up applying to a PhD program and I originally was going to study aphasia treatment research because that was an area that I was really passionate about and I still am. But then my mentor, Dr. Jackie Hinckley, gave me this monograph, which is just a, a really thin book and it just introduced me to a field known as implementation science. And as I was reading it, it just really illuminated to me all of these issues that I've been facing. So it talked about how in so many fields, there is a research to practice gap and that it's not the individual's fault. You know, I felt so much guilt and shame that I wasn't doing a good job as a clinician and to know that there was an entire discipline dedicated to bringing research to practice and conducting research in real world settings, it just absolutely blew my mind. And I knew that that was where I needed to be. And it's been interesting because throughout my PhD program, I worked PRN in skilled nursing. And I remember being at school and talking about best practices and research and then going to the nursing home and being like, wow, like this, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to bridge this divide. It was just so dramatically different, but I'm really hopeful because I feel like implementation science is one way that we can kind of get those two worlds closer together. Okay.
0: So I have 400 thoughts. <laughs> okay. Yay. I'm excited. <laughs> uh, so, I laugh because my neurodiversity is showing you're talking and I'm sitting over here playing with my hair and like drifting, but like with like a purpose, but yes. Okay. So one, we had Dr. Rebecca Wada on. Okay. I want to say January of last year. Okay. And I worked at Francis Marion University for like 18 months as their clinic coordinator and secured practicums for two cohorts. Taught three graduate courses wow. and saw 20 patients a week concurrently.
1: Oh boy.
0: I did 18 months and then for my mental health and physical health, it's like, thank you, no, thank you. But fabulous people. And Rebecca's brilliant. Her doctorate was in implementation science as well.
1: Oh my gosh. I'll have to connect with her. I'd love to. I don't, I haven't had the pleasure to meet her yet.
0: Yes. She's wonderful. And she also came from a nursing home and was super frustrated with what the breakdown was as well. So you two would get along like peanut butter jelly. So um, I need to connect y'all. But she deep dove into what implementation science was. So folks, if you want to like go back, because today we're going to talk about like what we're actually doing, but like Becca talked to us, sorry, (laughs) Becca, Becca, I love you and that cute little baby you and your hubby made. But we went into specifics on implementation science and like, it's not even six degrees of change, but it's like one degree of change and like the reassessments and yet to dot, but like folks, we have to give ourselves grace. Yes. Because we only know what we know. And if most of your actual real world experience came from your graduate practicums and your practicum clinical supervisor, external or internal, is not staying abreast of continuing ed and Dare I say, like, I mean, I've been there where money was tight when we had tiny humans and all I could afford was the bare minimum CEUs due to those extenuating circumstances, right? Yes. Like I get that, but those are barriers to current practice. And I mean, we could go through the list of them, but you triggered my mind. One of the things that I think that we need specific for the world of PFD is a clinical supervisor checklist, something that's like universally adapted. And I talked to Kristen, Rocky and Aaron and I, and so we got like an idea, but like, wouldn't that be cool if, if we had like policies for this is current evidence-based practice for these settings that should be checked off, like embedded within practicums, like to extend the CASA standards that are required in like the skills in the academic coursework, but like Within those, instead of just checking fluency or just checking dysphagia?
1: I think that is huge, Michelle. I think it's a brilliant idea and it reminds me of a couple things. So, one, it makes me think about clinical practice guidelines, which we don't have a ton in our field. No, but we have some. But what's interesting and a little bit sad is that even when we have clinical practice guidelines, we don't necessarily do them. Yes, unfortunately, unless there is some type of either incentive or specific human behavior change strategy to kind of make that happen. And I love what you said about grace, because I think it's very easy, at least for people like me to consider these types of gaps, like moral failing, like I'm not doing enough, I need to be better. You know what I mean? And like, we can't, it's, it's, that's not, that's not the case. And I think your checklist idea is brilliant across when we think about our clinical fellow supervisors, right? And those people who are supervising those practicums, Mm -hmm. those people are doing just a tremendous amount of work and they're doing it unpaid and they're doing it usually in addition to having to keep their practice afloat and, continue all of their job responsibilities. But their role in merging this research to practice gap, I think is just huge. And it would be interesting, I think, for us to consider that role and really elevate it both with compensation, education, in terms of what that role can actually do. So there is a really interesting study of medical students where throughout their whole medical student career, they were taught all the best evidence based practices and this and that and the other. And then they realized that no matter what they learned in medical school, they, once they got out into the real world, they molded their practice around their attending physician, right?
0: Yes. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. Because I, have had experiences and have heard from other colleagues that have also served as clinical professors Mm -hmm. that their input was not as received or felt that it wasn't as valued because it was not academia in that sense. And that is not, I'm saying these things carefully, correct? That is not indicative of every university or college setting. However, there is that concern, but at the same time, there's so much time spent in a relationship with an individual because you're with them intimately for Mm -hmm. several weeks, several hours, like per week. And that takes a whole new spin on intense learning.
1: I do think, you know, and I'm trying to write a paper, but it's under revision right now. I don't know if it will ever see the light of day, but we shall see. But about this, I personally think there's a power differential between practicing clinicians and people in academia that precludes researcher-clinician collaborations. Yes. And it's complicated and there's lots of layers there and i and again i think people are personally very well intended and i it, i really don't want people to think like oh academe, you know people in academia think they're so awesome they think they know everything and blah 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 but it, i think there's matters of the system like the way the system is structured right that yes. it kind of puts this clinical knowledge on a like lower level if you will and it's really It's different, you know, and we have to kind of acknowledge that, you know, when you're in school, there's a very good chance that you're calling your professors, Dr. So-and-so and and -and so-and-so, and there is kind of like this hierarchy. Well, when do we
0: automatically stop. I legit cannot. I've yes. ran. I run into my professors every year at ASHA and that is Dr. So-and-so. And I remember when I like used the wrong homophone there, there, and there. I don't, hell, I don't even know if that's the right word for the thing. But like, <laughs> I remember bombing that paper in undergrad. I am 39 years old and I still have anxiety about that one freaking paper that gave me a C that brought me from a 3.86 to a 3.85. But you know, we're fine. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Everything <laughs> is fine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What a great example. Yeah. So it's like, but then we're supposed to collaborate and kind of be equal partners, ideally, in my mind, you know, and I think it's hard. To, it's it's hard to do. It is. But like, so we had Ed Bison. Do you know Ed? I know his name from the swallowing yes. world, but I don't know him personally.
0: He's a wonderful human and he has his little bow tie and just the most (laughs) – him and his wife are adorable and he's got like the cutest little grandbaby and I love Mm. following him on Facebook because it's all pictures of his sweet baby grandbaby and that's just wonderful. But he talked about how like within – even within the peds world Mm – like the dysphagia class, now that it's starting to focus more on peds dysphagia and pediatric feeding disorder, it's typically taught by a professor that has adult experience. Right. And he used himself as an example because he is an adult dysphagia guru, mm-hmm. but, you know, and he was in, to, uh, like, he is responsible because he's um, adjunct faculty at two universities for teaching the peds dysphagia class. And like, but it was just, it was profoundly insightful yeah. but he was talking about like from there taking research and academia and putting it into practice but they don't have that firsthand clinical experience and how that is it's a barrier okay we've already 20 minutes in and we've <laughs> squirreled out the gate but like important critical conversations to preface what is being done and what we can do because we've been able to identify like Point assistant breakdowns.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely.
0: Okay. So, what do you see that's being done in the research world to like help fix these concerns?
1: Right. So, I think that one of the most exciting opportunities out there is I think there is a cohort of researchers who are really getting it. And I think that that cohort is getting bigger and more influence by the day. And I find that really exciting because when I was working on my PhD about 10 years ago now, and I would say things like research to practice gap, evidence-based practice, realities of clinical service provision, no one would really acknowledge it except to say, that's a great way to kill your research career because no one's going to fund that research. <laughs> and I wish I was joking, but that, that's not. Are you serious? Yeah. But that's changing. And that's changed in 10 years. And so I think this research, you know, that is very clinically applicable, that is very collaborative in terms of equal clinician input, I think that it is rising and will continue to rise. But unfortunately, this type of real change is really slow. So in comparison to 10 years ago, when no one was really talking about these issues as frankly, now, just a few months ago, there was actually an implementation science in Communication Sciences and Disorders Conference. So this was held at the MGH Institute of Health Professions and Dr. Tiffany Hogan set it up. And there were hundreds of not just researchers, but clinicians who are interested in best practice and maybe even in getting involved in research to some degree that really were pointing to you know, look, we got to take a hard look at this and think about these systems and what needs to change, you know, because I think at the end of the day, we all want what's best for our clients. We all want to be serving them to the best of our ability. And in order to do that, we really have to connect with each other and collaborate. So I think there's going to be more clinically applicable research that really has an implementation lens. I think it's starting to get a lot more attention, a lot more funding, and that's really the way to get it out there. The other thing that I think is happening is what you yourself are doing. So when we think about podcasts, when we think about social media feeds, those are potentially ways to really merge that research to practice divide because I don't know the backstory for sure about why you started this podcast, Michelle, but I'm guessing it's because you saw a need that wasn't being filled.
0: Nope. 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 Oh, Erin, this was Erin's idea. She saw the need. Erin saw the need and and pulled you in? Well, Erin was my student. Mm -hmm. And so this was four and a half, five years ago that we did this. Mm -hmm. And Erin was my student and she was like, because I was talking to her about, About research to practice, and like why we engage in current evidence based practice, and did that. And Erin went to Pitt for undergrad, and then U of SC for grad school. And I didn't go to either schools. I did ODU, Old Dominion University for undergrad, and James Madison University for grad school. So I'm purple, and I'm a Lady monarch. But Erin was like, "We need, we need to do this." She's like, "Michelle, you, you need to share what you know." And my thing was. I've always admitted when I don't know, but God has blessed my stars to bring in these amazing mentors. But it was the bridge. Like this was an opportunity to be a conduit, to be a bridge because home health is lonely. I mean, I'm traveling in my car between patients' houses and like, That can get isolating, but it's also an opportunity for me to like be a sponge.
1: Mm, I love that. Yeah. And I, I love that your student did that because I think that points to another positive that I think is coming out of these discussions is that we need to amplify clinician voices. Yes. We need to amplify. So Aaron, kind of seeing, wow, Michelle, you have so much... You know, knowledge, we need to get that out into the world because maybe you're not likely, most clinicians are not associated with a university and you shouldn't have to be to be able to share your knowledge with people. You know, I just find that really fascinating and very exciting because ideally it should be a circle in my mind. So research could inform practice, but then practice. Could also inform research. Yes, right. You know what I mean.
0: Yes, yes. That's wholeheartedly yes, because we understand for AAC. AAC is my next love, oh, right? Okay. Like, yep. Because I I treat medically complex kids, mm-hmm. so I get the least of these. But I do early interventions, so I've got fifteen month olds that I'm bringing in a speech generating device on, and people when they hear that, they look at me like I've got three heads, and I'm like. No, 15-month-olds have functional, like a typically developing 15-month-old has functional emergent communication. Like some of it's spoken, but so much of it is gestural. But I mean, Mm. the little ones that I've seen, they may have hemiparesis due to a grade 3 IVH and intraventricular hemorrhage and... They can't utilize like half of their body, but that other half, yes, they can. So why would I inhibit their expressive language when I can empower them? But it's not sitting on a floor of a single wide trailer off a dirt beaten road where Mm. not everybody has comfortability level with technology, nor have they seen something of this nature right? Oh my gosh. Yes. I can take all the research in the world, but when I'm there having a crucial conversation with a young mom who got pregnant at like 15 and that has to go back into research.
1: Yes. I mean, that, that is such a real depiction of what's happening, you know, in the real world, because this, this is the world that we live in. And we know that The families that we work with across the lifespan are extremely diverse in numerous ways. And when we think about the research that gets published, for one, not much of it is super clinically applicable. So one of my part-time jobs is I'm an editor for the Informed SLP. And what they do is every month it's a huge operation of i think close to 60 people they search all of the journals that any speech language pathology article or dysphagia article could be published in so we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of journals every month and i'd say that maybe between 5 and 10% of those articles are clinically applicable. And then you have, again, that number is going to go down because how many times have you read a journal article about a family, you know, in the middle of rural wherever in a trailer? Yeah, yeah.
0: No. And then add in language, variations of language and whether or not I have access to an interpreter. See, yes, that
1: exactly. Exactly. These are, you know, many studies that you read, one of the inclusion criteria is that they're an English speaker, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a problem, right? So we, once we, and again, this is not about personal blame, but we have to think about what we're doing. With these variables. Yeah. I mean, there's so many layers to this. It's like, what type of research is being funded? Who are the participants? Where, what are the situations of these participants? And then you can think about how difficult it really is to translate some of that to the real world. It really becomes a challenge. And so we need people that you know, in Canada and, and in Australia, they have a position known as a knowledge broker, where in some cases, what? yeah, it's their full time job to merge the research to practice gap. I want to do that. I know, right? And I
0: think part of it is already doing it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I feel like I just got cold chills because I just imagined Professor McGonagall meets Mrs. Frizzle. <laughs> Ah. The, fr- the fizz, Like from the magic school yes. bus, like meets my art history professor who was like double PhD in psychology and art history and studied like psych through art. Like what? Oh, that is the coolest job ever. Right? Okay. Continue. No, now exactly. Like, but I mean, Canada.
1: I think that that really points to the... Intensity of labor that this is right. So, we're talking about at the informed SLP just for one discipline, it requires like 60 people to comb through the literature, and so many of so much of it is not clinically useful. Yeah, and we can't expect clinicians to go through that themselves, right, especially when. They, for many of these publications, could be up against a paywall where it's like fifty bucks an article. I mean, that just doesn't even make sense.
0: No, when honestly, like that's it's scary, but like we don't have we don't have access to them. And Mm -hmm. to be fair, I am a member of Sig Thirteen, and so I'll read Sig Thirteens when they come out, and they have gotten much better over the last couple years of including Peds perspectives. Nice. Wait. So now I got I got a question. Wait. Special interest group thirteen is for dysphagia folks. Special interest group twelve is for AAC. I don't know the rest. Those are the two that I.
1: I can tell you two and fifteen because two is neuro neurogenic (laughs) language disorders and fifteen is gerontology. So that gives us a little bit more. We got, we got, we got four of them. I feel like
0: this is a pop quiz and we're failing. Come on, woman. (laughs) I love it. Okay. But all right. So then, so then my question becomes, where is the role of, and I'm like, I know I'm getting ahead, but like, Mm -hmm. I see we now have like backtrack in my head. I am thinking through the process of I have heard the cries for PhDs to be funded and expanded and made viable for people to live off of Mm -hmm. because our faculty is shrinking in the sense that we have less and less PhDs being pursued because we can't afford it, right? Like I would love to go for a PhD, but like I got a mortgage and soccer and apparently archery this fall go team. (laughs) I'm now convinced they're going to shoot their eye out with an arrow, but like we now have SLPDs and clinical science doctorates. Mm-hmm. And are you seeing more of an educational doctorates? Because it wasn't didn't you mentor our sweet friend Kristen in like pursuing her educational doctorate?
1: So I did so without knowing it and I'm so excited about it. <laughs> yes. Awesome. But she's a great example of of seeing yeah. something that wasn't happening and really not seeing a way you know, in terms of the traditional system that we have and kind of merging her own path.
0: Yes. I feel like those are great examples for people that are clinicians wanting to pursue clinical research and on this end, being a partner in
1: it. I agree completely. Here's where I am concerned and where we're going to probably have to see, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of changes, but here's the deal. So right now, In graduate programs that are accredited for speech language pathology, there is a certain amount of PhDs required in order to maintain, yes, in order to maintain your accreditation.
0: At current- Wait, I got to follow up for that one. The PhDs, do they have to be in communicative sciences and disorders and speech pathology, or could you have a PhD in like- public health or in linguistics or a kissing cousin?
1: Yeah, it could be in speech pathology or related related fields. So for example, when I did my doctorate at the University of South Florida, we had faculty who were linguists and speech scientists that really didn't practice clinically, but it would still meet the ASHA requirement of PhD. So I think that This is really going to be a point of discussion, right? Because if you still have to have PhDs, a certain amount for that accreditation process Mm -hmm. and PhDs are not necessarily conducting clinically applicable research, then I think that has the potential to perpetuate that research to practice gap. So, I'm super supportive of SLPDs and the education doctorates and the clinical science doctorates a million percent. However, at this point, it's not considered a quote terminal degree or like that last stage degree for accreditation purposes. Now, will that change in the future? I think it might, but I think that in as much as we're supporting, some of these other doctorates, we can also hopefully provide a pathway for a PhD to conduct clinically applicable work as well. You know, I think ideally we would have both things going. And again, I'm not sure what will happen in terms of accreditation with this shrinking number of PhDs, as you mentioned, because it's difficult. You know, I know we've had searches for faculty that are difficult to fill, and I don't think that's a unique problem like you said.
0: No. Well, that and I just I don't know. The OTs and the physical therapists, occupational therapists and physical therapists are now moving in the world of OTD and PTD. Yeah. or DPT. So it's literally like an extra semester or an extra and it's not a PhD, but that's their terminal point. So instead of graduating with a master's, they're coming out with the DPT as like Their starting point. Yeah. And we're all allied health. And so I've wondered when we're going to see that roll in too.
1: I know. I
0: really wonder about
1: that too. And I wonder about thinking about all of the diverse needs that we have. And we have a lack of diversity in our field. Yes. And the cost of school already for a master's. And then you think about the cost for a doctorate degree, but then at the same time, our scope of practice is so wide that it almost seems, you know, like, for example, our master's program is 62 credits, you know, this is not like a 30 credit master's, like, these are very intense schedules. It's a very, intense, yeah, very intense schedule, very intense curriculum. And so it's like, would you be better off to add a semester or two and then say that it's a doctorate? I, I, you know, I don't, These are such tough issues for our field, and it really is interesting to see, like you said, PT and OT. And I also wonder too, you know, is there anything that we can learn from audiology? Because essentially, that's what they did too, right? Because it used to be masters, and they Mm -hmm. transitioned to a doctorate. And what has that done for their research to practice gap? And you know, these are areas that I'm really not familiar with, but I think it would be an interesting discussion to have. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: In my head, I'm making mental notes because that needs to be a follow-up interview with somebody that's like involved with that decision-making process. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Yeah. See? Yes. I love it. Okay. All right. So what do we do then on this side of the chair? When I am a clinician and I'm identifying all these barriers, but I'm I need my cup filled. I need to learn to grow because, again, freaking epicenter of the world for non-speech, moral motor exercises. So, like, how can I access research effectively? (laughs) This is the question,
1: right? And so I think we have our traditional ways of continuing education, right? But then there's the question of what... Is that continuing education, right? What is the source of it? And this gets really hard because, again, it is not a personal attack, but there are some continuing education providers, some people on social media that are really good at marketing. But when you drill down to look at the rigor of the science, it is not necessarily there. So I think one of my recommendations would be, and again, I recognize that there's no time to do this, would be to think about the source, right? So if it's coming from a company, can you see, you know, did they collaborate with a researcher and was that research published in a peer-reviewed journal, right? What is the, the history of the provider? You know, what going a little bit deeper and thinking about what is the source. I think that that's one way to do it is to really try to be informed about the social media feeds that we follow, about the continuing education that we pursue. Also the
0: interpretation. Yes. Because I'm sorry, if I don't see one more terrible tick of the talk dance or a reel where they're taking <laughs> a the journal talk. article for one clinical case study and generalizing a clinical case study over to all children with feeding tubes, but we're going to bust out a grind, one, <laughs> I cannot take your professionalism at all. Because this is not how we have conversations about a child's life and two if you're going to bust a grind there are clubs for that so like take it elsewhere folks i mean if you're there to make make fun of and be joyful and that's the purpose well then do that and keep your research out <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, wait, does that actually happen for real? All the freaking time. And it makes me want to pull my eyebrow hairs out because like I will sidebar with you after the recording's done and tell you which ones to go find. And legit, I just block it because like I don't have the energy to watch my profession and my colleagues do this to themselves, much less to like our field because then I'm like, a caregiver is going to find that. A caregiver who is so upset and distraught about what's going on with their child and where they are in the world. And yes. they're going to see like a tick to the talk and think like, oh my God, is that what speech pathologists act like? Like, is that what my speech therapist is going to – I mean, it's just <sighs> – See, that's fascinating to me. That needs to be a research study.
1: <laughs> well, you know what? It does. So I'm working with a couple of my colleagues. Actually, I think you're going to talk to Dr. Julie Feierstein from University yes. of Central Florida. Yeah. Yes. Her and Dr. Leslie Olzwang and I are working on this idea of dissemination. And it kind of gets to your question because dissemination means how do you get the word out? Okay. I know. I know. Right?
0: Sorry. The first time I said mastication to a parent, the dad did a double take and the mom is like, get your mind out of the gutter. Oh my so gosh. Like,
1: I love it so much. Oh my sorry. Gosh. No, don't you? <laughs> this is great. I love it. But yeah, so it's like, so traditional methods of disseminating research findings are published in a journal article, present at a conference, or... Something of that nature, right? So it's like, you got to go to this conference, you have to have access to this article. Well, now we know that one, even if you read the journal article, it's likely not going to change your practice, right? We've all had the situation where we've gone to conferences, and we've been so excited about a treatment and then we get back to the real world and we can't implement it, right? And that's not all the yeah. time, but some of the time. And that's super frustrating and, and demoralizing, right? So we know that our traditional methods of dissemination really don't work. So one of the questions we want to ask is, well, how do people want to receive their information? And so when you bring up the, and I love how you call it, tick of the talk, I just, it's just, it's the tick of the talk and the snap of the chats. It just makes me laugh so hard, but it's like, okay, what do we do with that? Right? Because are people really preferring to get their information that way? Is that where we're going? I mean, I don't know. Hopefully
0: not. But like, also we want information quick. See, exactly. Yes. But at the same time, like give me a quick summation. Yeah. Like give me, like when I honestly, when I read a journal article, I'm going to read the front page and the last page of the article. If it piques my interest, then I'll go back and read the body. But I skim it because I don't have time to read the entire thing because to be fair, I'm doing it while I'm at a stoplight. Don't do as I do, people. I'm doing it in car line while I'm waiting for everybody to remember how to enter cars quickly at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Like the guy that's in charge of putting the children in the car and out of the car at our school, he's like um, former Marine. So oh my gosh! Like, he like rolls those kids in the car like like they're <laughs> storming a beach, and I'm like, and my husband was Army, so he appreciates oh this immensely. But I'm like, ooh,
1: they're only little guys, and the backpack's as big as they are. Slow down! <laughs> oh my gosh, that is so funny.
0: That's why I mean I can read the first page and the last page, and then I'll star it, tag it, save it, and email it to myself, and then go back and read it. Like at night when my eyelids are about to close.
1: See, and that's a great example because here's the other thing that we have to really be honest about. That research was not even written for you as a clinician. No. Because that, no, exactly. I didn't translate it. Exactly. That research was written for other researchers. Right? And so, and again, you're describing the labor that you're putting into this where you're not necessarily getting paid to do that, right? Like you're doing it because you're very passionate and you want to give the best that you can for your clients. But other than that, you know, what is your incentive to do that, right? How can we build in time to where consuming that research is part of the job? But the other thing that I think is even more important than that. Is if we lived in an ideal world, then you could read that article and then you could give your feedback to that researcher and you would inform each other. So you can say to the researcher, this is why that would never work, or this would work really well. What about this? Right To where it would be less of a, you are this clinician that you know, your job is to consume, right? To just basically be the consumer.
0: Yes.
1: Why are you not also a contributor, right? Like we need this to go back and forth, you know? And I would encourage people, I mean, the people that write the research, they're just people. So if you see, you know, this might be another strategy. If you see or read an article or go to a continuing education seminar where you're really jiving with the presenter, reach out to them, send them an email. They're just a person. Give them your feedback. You know, every journal article says address correspondence to, to whoever is the corresponding author. I would say in like 15 years, I've had like two people ever contact me about a journal article. (laughs) Like it's not something that people do, but You could, you know, to try to get that conversation going. But again, I get that it's unpaid labor, essentially. But I think ideally, like you reading that article, like how cool would it be for it to be more of a dialogue for continued
0: studies? So you just threw a gauntlet. (laughs) That's what that's what my husband said when we moved to South Carolina because when I started out in adults and oh. I worked at a yeah, I started at well, I started in the public schools as a speech teacher back in Virginia and then got my Masters and went to work in a rural hospital, so I treated primarily adults inpatient ICU, med surge floor, uh-huh. like ultra mental status, UTI's, mild CVAs. Like the big ones, went forty five minutes across the river to like the big hospital. But like we moved to South Carolina, and it's at the time only had two masters programs, so if you wanted a hospital job, you basically had to go to one of the schools here, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I got into early intervention and loved it. Didn't at first because I was like, the system is so broken. Mm. And so my husband was like, okay, so then fix it. Mm. And then he goes, I was like, excuse me. He go- He's had a beer in his hand. I had my pint and he goes, all right. He goes, you don't have a hair to fix this. And I was like, oh, <laughs> You're my family line. That's what my dad always says. But normally that involves like oyster shots and like, oh my gosh, I love it. Country backwoods merriment, like, you know, but I was like, okay, cool. Well, then let's fix this. But Mm -hmm. it makes me think I have gotten to the point where when I read an article in the Asha Leader that intrigues me, Mm -hmm. I'll reach out and ask the author to be on the podcast. I love that. Yes, yes, yes. But like that's a, okay, take this one step further. I saw this here. I read this here. Expand, expunge, like make us as my sister said when she was little, make us more gooder. Oh, make us more gooder. That's what I was like. As an adult, I'm like, ooh, we had some regular past tense verb conjugation issues. <laughs> but like, I love, love. Five year old squat. I mean, her nickname's also squat. So, like, what do you expect? <laughs> oh, now I have to meet her. <laughs> yeah. I'm intrigued. Uh, you're, yes, she's, she does maybe intelligence stuff now. So oh, you know, wow. Oh yeah, she's she's powerhouse, but yeah. Oh okay. But a gauntlet has been thrown. This is something that all of us can do. I mean, we can instead of just thinking the question, we can message. You really can. Yes. Okay. So then we've had Dr. Kelly Kelly, I'm gonna butcher it. Dr. Kelly Farquharson on. She is a
1: perfect example of a researcher who to practice. Yes. Research yes. To research pr- she is ideal. Ideal. Yes.
0: Yes. And Kelly, when she was on, she and you, and I've seen some of the other labs do it. And this to me is ethical presentation of research. Okay, Mm -hmm. folks, that's what I'm going to say. There's no tick of the talks. There's no dance (laughs) reels. There's no like, it is ethical presentation of materials. Okay. But like both of y'all have interactive labs and I know U of SC has the scroll lab Mm -hmm. and they have the aphasia lab. And like, I'm familiar with them just because I take their students every semester. Okay. So that's why I'm like familiar because like, you know, those students and like I adopt them and then I'm proud of them because I see like what they're publishing, right? Like what they're doing. But these labs, if you follow them on Instagram, share snippets of research. I mean, yes, they also show pictures from like their faculty parties and like, you know, but they make them, they make the researchers feel like real humans instead of- something sterile and scary. Yeah. It's scary as a clinician to reach out and to ask a question because we don't want to be viewed as being an unequal partner. Gosh, that just breaks my heart. I know it's the reality, but it just, oh. Yes. But that's what it feels like. Yeah. But I mean, like I'm okay saying that because I know I'm a beautiful hot mess of an unequal partner at times, but like But being able to ask those questions and just interacting through social media is fantastic because your lab, okay, so your, hold on, let me shrink down here.
1: I try, like, I am, I really need support with social media. (laughs) So, like, every semester I'm like, I wonder if I can get a student who's really, really good at social media. Yes. Kelly is such a good example because... And that's the other thing I think about the source, right? Like I know if something is coming from her, it has been vetted. It, it's not even my area, right? But it's like it has been studied. Like she's been in the trenches. She gets it. And so like thinking about the source again.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, and like you coming into the adult worlds with your experience, she came in as a school-based clinician. Yes. And I love that. That too. to me, like... You've literally been there and you know why I'm crying. You know why I'm I get frustrated. Yes, okay, I'll pull up Kelly's lab. Your lab is
1: it's really long and it's a terrible name, but it's like okay. No,
0: but it's great, but we don't have to say at and that's what cracks me up is like I always want to say it's at implement underscore CSD, but like, or at Natalie underscore F underscore. Douglas but like it's just kind of funny to me because you don't have to say at anymore but my middle-aged self
1: yeah I didn't know that you don't have to
0: say at you anymore. no also you don't apparently have to say the www dot <laughs> <You just> say- <laughs> okay
1: so so funny oh my gosh that makes sense. Yeah.
0: oh I feel really old right now Erin apparently has been thinking that every time I say it for like Years and she finally told me last Friday when we were recording (laughs) another girlfriend, and she was like, and they all started teasing me, and I was like, okay, duly noted. But how do you not say that? Okay, but those are your life. And on Twitter, you're at nat underscore Douglas, I did it again, and your other account is mm, implement underscore CSD. Yes, exactly. So
1: the whole idea is that we're implementing. Not just research to practice, but hopefully practice to research if we can. And again, admittedly, I need some support with my um, social media, but I'm trying. (laughs)
0: I'm trying. But hey, if you're a student and you're looking for a great way to volunteer and you're on the fence about peds to adults, but you really understand that we need to expedite research to practice, this would be a great opportunity to volunteer. And I mean, Natalie's a phenomenal mentor. So there's there's that opportunity as well. And there is a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. And mentor is there to fill your cup. But I, when they talk highly about you when you're not even in the room,
1: mm-hmm. that's
0: a sponsor. And that's what we just witnessed you do with our sweet friend, Kristen. Like that's, oh. that's where you just take it like a whole nother level. And yes, all in my feels.
1: I love these feels. This is what we need because I think that's another way too to – merge the research to practice gap. I really
0: do. Okay. So we have five minutes. Okay. Give us everything that you got that you haven't covered Mm -hmm. in five minutes. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's a semester worth of material.
1: (laughs) I know. I love it so much. I think that the biggest thing is if you can to recognize that as a clinician, you should feel just as empowered interacting with a researcher As another researcher would. Your input is just as valuable. It is just as important. It is just as critical to solving these complex problems. I mean, we work with communication and swallowing, right? These are complex, wicked problems that we're trying to solve. And we need everybody, we need all hands on deck. So when I think about Clinicians who are listening, if you could leave this conversation and know how valuable your input is, that's a win, right? And so if you want to reach out directly to a researcher, if you really want to take some time and think through some of the socials that you're following and think about, you know, where is this information coming from and has it been vetted? And what is it that they're really wanting to convey with their feeds? If you see a need that you feel like you cannot fill with your clinical skills, Reach out to a neighboring university, reach out to an expert that maybe you're not as familiar with. And, you know, I have to tell you, even within the research field, there are these weird socially constructed hierarchies, right? Like, what? Oh my gosh, yes. Like, for example, my institute is primarily teaching. So like, it's not a research intensive institution. So when I go to talk to researchers who have millions and millions of funding, I do, I feel like a, a lot of less than when I'm in meetings with people that, you know, are going to our faculty members at these huge powerhouses, I feel like, oh, gosh, like, should I be here? Like, but we, we have to, it's that when I get in that Mindset, and again, this is like years of of therapy, right? (laughs) Like I have, it's not contributing, right? Like the problems that I want to solve, like me being like, oh, I don't know, that's not contributing to solving the problem, right? And so, just kind of pushing past some of that stuff, and you're going to have people that might, you know, what will likely happen if they don't respond right away with enthusiasm is you just won't get a response at all. You know, you might get a gentle you know, no, I don't really have time or whatever, you might not get a response. But the more you do it, the more we you know, when I was first starting off, like every rejected paper rejected conference would really throw me into a tailspin for weeks. And now just understanding that rejection or not getting a response is just all part of it. It's just all part of it. And we're all just humans. And if you have the capacity to persist, and somebody doesn't respond, then try another person, you know, and you just never know when that opportunity might open, but your questions are valid.
0: Yes. That on my end, I get lovely emails and Instagram messages and I feel like I'm drowning most days. Yeah. (laughs) So like, I mean, mental health is better now because I Changed jobs. I've cut back on what's on my plate, but I cut back on what's on my plate to add something big onto it. And Mm -hmm. so, like, also just remembering if the person can't get back to you, what's going on in their personal world, too.
1: Totally. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you said that. And yeah, exactly. Like, if you don't have the capacity to reach out to people or the time to read research, like, I would not beat yourself up. Like, everybody has different levels of what they're able to do and in different times you know but I think for those of us who are able which is not everyone but for those of us who are maybe that can make it easier you know for another person if that makes any sense yes
0: yes Natalie this has been amazing oh it's been so fun absolutely amazing I would love to have you back on to talk about like I know you do adults, but just, I mean, what what are you researching yourself? Can you just tell us that?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm really excited because I just finished up a really awesome project that was a collaboration with Encore Rehab. So I don't know if any of your listeners work for Encore, but we have an intervention that is designed to help support communication for people With dementia in nursing homes. So this is an intervention that you as a SLP administer with the nursing assistant. And the whole idea is to really empower that nursing assistant by letting them know that, you know, they know the resident best. They've been working with the resident. They know the ins and outs and really working as a team to try to make life better for the person with dementia and so these involve this involves communication strategies memory aids you know meaningful activities sometimes vision and hearing supports but we saw some really nice results we did this in six encore buildings during covid so these clinicians these slps are and cnAs are just complete and utter rock stars
0: this is literally research to practice and the two in a circle we're trying we're trying
1: and they gave me some good feedback, Michelle, like, one of the nursing assistants was like, because like, I have this little like treatment manual of like, what to say and do. They're like, this is too long. (laughs) You know, like, and I'm so grateful for that feedback. They were like, there's too much blank space here. And it's actually making me feel less than because I feel like I need to put words in these blank spaces. And it was so fascinating to me because in my limited mind, I was like, Oh, I'm just going to give them like a blank page for notes. But they perceived it as like, I should be filling this in to be like, quote, doing it right. And so it's like those types of things, right in the real world that I would never necessarily think of. But the goal now is to really scale that up by using the entire healthcare system. So like diving into the electronic medical record and looking at data that we're already taking. So things like billing and claims data, the cognitive screener that we already give and trying to say, okay, does this intervention work based on any of the data that we're already taking so that we're not putting that extra burden onto practitioners to continue to have to like fill out more surveys or do this or that, but to really try to kind of meld the two worlds. So that's kind of what I'm working on now. So super excited for these collaborations and hopefully we can hit at some of these like system level concerns.
0: I need to connect you to my girlfriend, Renee. Renee Garrett is past president of Virginia. Okay. And she's an adult clinician phenomenal adult clinician over in the Hampton Roads area. And she was acute inpatient and just switched to an outpatient. But the amount of caregiver coaching that I could see those people needing that she engages in, because I mean, the caregiver, whether it be a CNA or a spouse or a yes, child, yes. I mean, because yes, these patients need, I mean, eventually they often need to be in a group home setting, like a skilled mm-hmm. nursing facility. But mm-hmm. having those, I mean, that would take it in a totally okay we need to do that. Oh, I'm excited. Yes. Okay. All right, folks, send questions. So yes, please do. We love it. (laughs) Yes. At Natalie dash or underscore F underscore Douglas or at implement underscore CSD or, you know, at first five podcast.
1: (laughs) You know, you did say the at three times, but we will not tell Erin.
0: She's going to listen to this and be like, Michelle, adult better. (laughs) But like, yo, 39 and change, baby. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Hold on one second, Natalie, okay? Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance.